of the conference because it sounds like um, Richard Vetter did some really major, has a lot of really nasty things about Texas. Did that happen? That's what, I, this morning at 8.45 I got an email with, and a subject line got my attention, debunking Vetter. And it says, this morning in Washington, D.C., Dr. Richard Vetter will be headlining a conference on higher education at the Cato Institute where he will be using his analysis from the University of Texas at Austin to make the case that professors at US, UT Austin are unproductive. Unfortunately, his analysis is flat wrong and based on an intentional distortion of the data. So I'm sorry I missed all of that. Um, but the, this was from the um, Texas Coalition for Excellence in Higher Education, and um, I thought it was just kind of an interesting press release. I don't usually get this kind of press release before a conference like this. But anyway, so that's what we're talking about today is what's going on in Texas. And I'm going to um, quickly introduce people, since we're a little bit tight on time. To my far right is Jamie Grunlin, who is an associate professor at the other school in Texas. The other school in Texas. I'm so sorry. Um, and was <laughs> and was recently appointed the Gulf Oil Thomas A. Dietz Career Development Professor. Um, I think it's interesting to note that he um, has published more than 70 peer-reviewed papers. Uh, you've generated more than 2.5 million dollars in external research funding, and he has a joint appointment in the chemical engineering department along with mechanical engineering at Texas A&M. Sorry about that. To my immediate right is Jeff Sandifer, a master teacher at the Acton School of Business and at the, t at the University of Texas, right? No. no. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and began teaching entrepreneurship at the graduate level 20 years ago. He was, while he was at the University of Texas, Sandifer was voted five times by students as UT's outstanding teacher and was named by Business, Speak, Business Week as one of the top entrepreneurship professors in the United States. And to my left is Diane Auer Jones who is Vice President for External and Regulatory Affairs for Career, for Career Education Corporation. Before that, she was in several po public policy roles, including as Program Director at the National Science Foundation. Uh, she was with the Research Subcommittee of the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Science, and most recently as the Assistant Secretary of Post-Secondary Education at the U.S. Department of Education. So I'm looking very forward to hearing what our speakers have to say, and I think we'll just start from the right and work our way left. Jamie? Okay. So it seemed like everybody was going up to the middle. I don't, I, not that I, I think, I didn't think I needed to, but anyway, I feel, feel like I'm back at, at the Board of Regents. Uh, I'm having flashbacks, I, I, anyway. None of you know what I'm talking about. It's okay. I'm a regular professor, so let me say up front, I'm not a professional debater or complainer, although maybe that's what, apparently that's what professors are. But <laughs> I think I work hard, 60 to 70 hours a week, et cetera, all of those things. So, but um, we have become the target in Texas, and so, but, but I'm not a pro at this. I expect to be slaughtered at the end of the, you know, this session, and that's fine. I'm very happy to... Uh, be that uh, person. Um, so anyway, I'm going to just read my statement. Uh, I'm going to stay on script, I, I hope. Um, so our nation's research universities play a unique role in the leadership position the United States has held in science and technology. We've mostly been talking about humanities today. I'm an engineer. Over the past 50 plus years, the challenging economic climate we've experienced over the past four years has led many to believe that reducing state and federal support to these institutions is an easy way to save money. Furthermore, the unique balance of research and teaching has been questioned with regard to its value by numerous think tanks who use classroom hours and number of students taught in the classroom as the sole measure of efficiency and value. Um, so research universities make up only 5% of the approximately 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. Um, and so in those colleges are almost exclusively focused only on undergraduate education and I would assume they would be considered productive. So it's, this has been mostly targeted against just research, the minority of universities in the United States. Research universities maintain a strong undergraduate mission but they also have a strong graduate component and research holds equal importance to classroom teaching. 
and both research and classroom teaching are effective teaching tools. So I think I'm teaching even when I'm in the lab with my graduate students working on a research problem. In fact, I would say you'd get a better education because you're putting into practice the things that you learned in the classroom. So the two things directly feed each other, and I have numerous undergraduate students I'm going off script in my research lab as well, who I pay personally from outside research funds that I generate. Learning in the classroom is directly applied in a research setting that provides students with real-world skills and also furthers knowledge designed to help solve the most difficult societal problems for the United States and the world for that matter. While some of this research does not receive significant funding from external organizations, that wouldn't be true for me, but I'm, I'm helping the humanities here, all of it improves the education of our students by honing writing, critical thinking, and organizational skills, which are all necessary to be competitive in today's job market. Uh, the pacemaker and the computer are just two examples of objects that were invented inside U.S. research universities. You would not have a personal computer today. You would not have a pacemaker. I hope nobody has one, but if you do, University of Minnesota. Medtronic wouldn't exist if not for research that started at University of Minnesota. Uh, my own research on safe anti-flammable treatments for fabric, gas barrier layers for food packaging and flexible electronics, and thermoelectric composites capable of turning waste heat or even body heat into electricity brings in enough external funding to pay my own salary two times over each year and funds the education of eight PhD students and I pay hourly eight other undergraduate students that work with those PhD students. Two-thirds of this funding is from private industry. Um, this work both educates and spurs economic growth in, in the state of Texas and nationwide, I would say. And so I wrote joke, joke here. I said, I failed to see this mentioned in any of the spreadsheets or anything. Uh, even though research was, a, so the spreadsheets were these things released in Texas, all of the calculations made purposely left off the research component. And I'll, I'll address that in, in a second. The, it was listed there, but it wasn't used in any of the calculations, as though it did not exist. Um, so I believe this speaks to underlying motives that do not have the public's best interest at heart. Even a cursory glance at the Texas Public Policy Foundation's solutions, I'm putting quotes, shows them to be very simplistic action items based upon severely flawed assumptions, i.e., Lazy professors and research somehow drive up tuition and waste taxpayer money. These are the underlying assumptions. I think they've been explicitly stated. In engineering, the assumptions that set the basis for a research problem are of utmost importance. If you begin a project or build a predictive model with flawed assumptions, the results will be worthless or even harmful. And I would say, in this case, it's harmful. Assuming the TPPF solutions to be simply naive is being kind. Because if they are not naive, it suggests they seek to harm the two flagship higher education institutions in the state of Texas. That would be Texas A&M and University of Texas. I'm only stating those in chronological order of existence in the state. Despite being powerhouse research institutions, both schools have six-year graduation rates above 80%, making them the best in Texas, period, and ahead of most of their national peers of a similar size of public research university. Um, additionally, both, school, both schools boast top 20 colleges of engineering, according to U.S. News, and annual tuition below $10,000 per year. Under the leadership of President Robert Gates, he, I think he's famous in this town, is that right? Uh, the immediate past Secretary of Defense, Texas A&M set out on an ambitious plan to become one of the top overall public universities. I was hired with the mindset of this is going to be it's already a great university, it's going to be greater. And I'm not talking about superficial, I'm talking about tangible greatness. It's been tops in engineering and agriculture for decades. But this path has been derailed, I hope just temporarily, by the efforts of the TPPF. This organization is not seeking to enter into a discussion, but rather they seek to hijack Texas tier one research universities for their own personal experiment. The Commission of 125, which is Distinguished Alumni and Citizens of the University of Texas, declared that research is essential and in turn it enriches teaching at all levels. 
Texas A&M's own Vision 2020, which was a consensus blueprint prepared and endorsed by all stakeholders to place Texas A&M in the top echelon of the nation's colleges and universities, says that it's a comprehensive research university with national peers. It goes on to say that Texas A&M is a creator, organizer, preserver, transmitter, and applier of knowledge. The objectives of the TPPF and those of similar think tanks are not aligned with these ideals. As Dr. Randy Deal says in his report, Maintaining Excellence and Efficiency at the University of Texas Austin, the TPPF is advocating a business-style, market-driven approach under which colleges and universities would treat students as customers, de-emphasize research that isn't immediately lucrative, and evaluate faculty by the tuition revenue they generate. Most of the TPPF rhetoric is focused on money as an underlying motivation, suggesting that research universities are especially wasteful of taxpayer subsidy and student tuition. It should first be noticed, not, whoops, it should first be noted that nearly half of the operating budget of Texas A&M University, and this would be true of most big research universities, is supplied by the faculty themselves through overhead and direct expenditures associated with external research funding. Tuition and taxpayer dollars together make up the other half. I, as a faculty member, have the most skin in the game, not the least. I'm a taxpayer, I directly pay tuition, and I generate research overhead. I'm the only person that does all three things, okay? So if I don't have skin in the game, I don't know who does. In essence, the work of the faculty subsidizes the operation of the school rather than the other way around, which is the picture being painted today. The TPPF would like us to model for-profit universities that currently educate 11% of our college students, but account for 25% of all federal financial aid. These same for-profit schools sponsor professional sports stadiums, essentially do no research, have six-year graduation rates of 27%, and account for 40% of all student loan default. We all the know, know the names of the most famous of these quote-unquote universities because of their monstrous advertising budgets. If you take the time to add up the cost, you'll see that they're more expensive than Texas and Texas A&M. Go online. You can, you can look this information up yourself. Smart Money Magazine ranked Texas A&M the top public university in the United States for return on investment, and the Princeton Review and USA Today and Kiplinger's personal finance basically says similar things. Maybe not number one, but something between number one and number five in the United States. Texas A&M was also ranked number two in a survey of 479 college recruiters, and this was done by the Wall Street Journal, in terms of our students being the best trained, educated, and able to succeed once hired. I assume that's why we want people going to college. The University of Texas can boast many similar sorts of rankings. I'm, of course, with Texas A&M so I don't have all those details. Together, these two schools represent an 18 to 1 return on taxpayer investment through job creation, technological advances, and, and related services, and are two of only three American Association of American Uni AAU schools, basically, in Texas. Rice, which is a small private school, is the only other AAU school in the state of Texas, and some would argue a state like Texas should have more top-ranked research schools. Anything done to undermine the success of the United States' tremendous research enterprise contained within its research universities that are the envy of the world still today will only serve to hurt our international competitiveness and harm the education of our citizens, period. Hopefully none of that was controversial. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. So I'd like to divide um, my comments uh, into uh, the original thoughts I had as one of the key authors of the seven solutions. And I want to be careful here. I'm speaking for myself, uh, not for TPPF uh, or not for anyone that tried to implement those. Uh, the seven solutions were originally came from my experience as a parent and a teacher for 21 years and having now served on various boards at the Harvard Business School for 21 years. So they were uh, an attempt to bring a more results-oriented, student-friendly focus uh, to education. They were seven ideas. Uh, they were presented several years ago at an open public meeting with a group of regents, uh, and since then have had a life of their own and have gotten kind of controversial. So what I'd like to do is comment on at least 
Uh, my intent as one of the authors behind those without uh, in any way talking about what anyone else wanted to do with them. Uh, and then also my personal view of what happened. And then a discussion of the data that was unveiled, unveiled because I think at the end of the day, the data uh, that, 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 uh, that this seven solutions fight uh, unveiled is uh, fascinating and deserves to be uh, studied uh, more and more by more scholars. So first to the seven solutions. Uh, again, the goal was to move to a more student-friendly, results-oriented uh, way to think about it. The seven solutions are actually really simple, and I don't think anybody's listened to them, so quickly I'll give you what they were. And by the way, there's two articles in the back, <clears throat> and I tried to represent the left and the right, even though we're at Cato. Uh, New Republic has a very uh, flattering article about how student-friendly and student-centric the, uh, the solutions were, and the National Review has a more recent article uh, on the same topic. Uh, quoting from the National Review article, the seven solutions were in order. One, that we should just publish uh, student evaluations and other, facul other faculty information. In other words, how much does each faculty member get paid? How, much do they, how many students do they teach? Uh, how, much, how many research funds are brought in? Uh, and um, their grade evaluations, how many A's and B's they give in student evaluations. No comment made on how this should be used, just that it was in the sense of transparency would be terrific uh, for taxpayers and parents and students to see. This, by the way, was the only one of the seven solutions that's happened and is the one that, for reasons I'll get into in a minute, created an enormous uproar. Uh, number two, in a teacher-student-friendly way, that the best teachers should receive voluntary bonuses, so you can volunteer for a bonus, based on student evaluations and your efficiency. So if you were teaching well and then you could teach more students, you would actually get a small bonus on top of how you were normally paid. A third, and I think this was the most misunderstood, that research and academic budgets should be separated, not meaning you should have two separate faculty, but it would be nice to measure each separately uh, and see what faculty members were doing. And in fact, this is where the data uh, from the collected shows some very surprising things. Uh, fourth, faculty, some faculty, at least a few, should show some record that they could actually teach before getting tenure. Uh, having been on tenure, uh, involved in tenure decisions, uh, I will tell you, and I think most of the academics in the room would agree, teaching has very little impact, uh, particularly at research universities, at, as to how tenure is um, uh, awarded. Uh, number five, students should receive a personalized learning contract, just promising what the school would deliver. That would allow the student evaluations to be more accurate. Uh, number six, legislative appropriations should go directly to students in the form of scholarships, not given to the schools to spend as they want. And number seven, that we should support an alternative accreditation not replace the original, the existing, but an alternative consumer's report style to give us better information and better feedback for parents and students than U.S. News and some of the rankings. So those were the seven solutions that were presented at a public meeting. And, you know, three or four years ago, and kind of everything died down. And then the governor and several regents decided to get serious at least about one of these, which was let's publish data that is already should be by law publicly available. And I'll tell you, that is when I saw the most vicious PR firefight I have ever seen in my life. So keep in mind at this point, nothing had been done. No laws passed, no rules, simply a request for data. I had reported by several people close to the process that um, people inside the administration uh, at, at one of these schools said, I know that data is public. I will not collect it and release it because it would destroy the university because the average person doesn't understand what we do here. I would hold if that's true, it is the university's responsibilities to explain it so the average parent and taxpayer like me does understand what they do here, but that there is no excuse for holding data in a non-transparent way and not, re and not releasing data to be analyzed. So it caused this massive PR effort uh, demonizing TPPF, uh, Rick O'Donnell, Rich Vetter, uh, to a certain extent myself, uh, for attacking research universities. Never were UT and A&M mentioned um, in, in, in the original seven solutions. Uh, so this was just meant as a framework for discussion. It did lead to data being published. It did lead to a violent uh, reaction from the university that, as per the press release, uh, continues even today. Um, attacking Rich Vetter for comments that he had not made at the point of time that the press release was written, which strikes me as rather odd. Uh, how they could know that you were in fact going to say something this morning um, is, is, strikes me as, as odd. Um, so just one last comment on, on the data itself. 
um, which I think is really interesting. And the data is pretty clear, actually. You can get this. This is available, available publicly. I would encourage people to get the spreadsheets. Uh, with about 15 minutes of Excel, you can do data sort and look at all sorts of different cuts on the data yourself. Uh, don't take my word for it or Rich's word for it or anybody's word for it. Look at the data. Uh, the data shows, and I'm going to use UT Austin here, not picking on UT Austin. It happens to be the first data set and the one I have. It's available on A&M and the other UT and A&M system schools. But at UT Austin, you see clearly there are three casts of teachers. Good, bad, or indifferent. This isn't a matter whether you like the fact there are three casts. It isn't a matter but there are three casts. And we've already heard them spoken about today earlier. There are the dedicated teachers, the adjuncts, people like me that taught for a number of years at a fairly low cost and taught most of the students. If you look at the group that are the most efficient teachers, meaning lowest cost per student taught at UT, the 1,000 most efficient teach on average for $46,000 a teacher. That's the income. They teach an average of 37 students a class, so not large classes. I taught a number of 40 student classes. That's very manageable in most cases. They taught on average 220 students a year, actually not a very large number of students. And if this group taught all of an undergraduate degree, including overhead, you could deliver an undergraduate degree for about $12,000 total. So these are very inexpensive teachers teaching as adjuncts mainly. And they brought in about $26 million of funded research, so they're clearly some traditional academics. There's a second group, and this was the most surprising thing to come out of the data. And they are, and Jamie's one of the people here that would, would be in this second group. Because what you find that's shocking is there's a group of super researchers. 90% of the external research money brought in the university is brought in by 10% of the faculty. Now, let me be clear. I am all for research. I'm an engineer. I've used research. Research is great. So anybody that runs out and says I'm anti-research isn't telling the truth. In fact, I think what we should do is change the incentives so we get more people like Jamie from California and Washington and anywhere else to come to Texas. I'm all for taking productive researchers and, and giving them incentives to bring more of them. I think it's a terrific idea. So let me be clear on the record there. The problem is there's a third group the least productive, and I call this the political professoriate, which may be a little um, uh, inflammatory, but I'm talking about people who do neither much funded research or much teaching. This group, oh, by the way, the super researchers on average make 164,000 people like Jamie, teach seven students a class, about 112 students a year, and the teaching's free because, as Jamie pointed out, they pay for themselves. So. The teaching comes as a free good along with all the research money Jamie brings in. Contrast that with the political professoriate, the least productive, who make on average $155,000 a year, about as much as Jamie's group. They teach about seven students a class. They only teach 44 students a year. So despite bringing in almost no funded research, they teach a third the number of students that someone like Jamie teaches. and. If you take those numbers out, the implied cost of an undergraduate degree would be not $12,000, but $406,000. Now, be clear, I'm not saying the humanities are bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't write research papers. That's not the point. That's not for me to decide. I do think the disparity in workloads and cost per student and cost per degree is something that deserves being looked at by scholars and policymakers and parents and taxpayers. I just think that the data ought to be out there and looked at and that, it's, that it's, it's worth looking at. There is a transformation coming in education with all the new blended learning that's going to put tremendous pressure. So we want our universities to survive and prosper. We're going to need to find new ways for them to come, become both higher quality, because I don't think the teaching quality is nearly what it should be, and more efficient at the same time. We're, we're going to have to have both. I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, speak from sitting at the table because for the first time in my life I decided to bring my notes on my little device today and if I stand up there it won't stand and I won't be able to see it with the light so uh, forgive me for sitting while I speak. Um, I started my career, I'm a molecular biologist by training and I started off as a faculty member with NSF grants um, before switching to policy so I guess I've been on both sides and probably everywhere in between. Um, so uh, you know I, I, I make remar my remarks having been probably on both sides of, of this argument at one point in time in, in my life or another. 
I think accountability is critically important in higher education, but I think the Texas A&M approach is frankly backwards. The Texas A&M approach, um, it supports the premise that we continue to bring in faculty, kind of let them do what they want to do, let them tell the university what they're willing to do, and then after it's all said and done, kind of look backwards to see, you know, did it work or did it not. And so I think one of the critical changes or shifts that we need to make in higher education is uh, we need to start treating faculty like every other employee in the United States of America, which means that we need to identify which jobs need to be done on the campus. We need to hire people to do those jobs, and then we need to evaluate them based on their performance in those jobs. And as Dr. Trachtenberg said, that's not how universities work, where faculty somehow decide whether or not the president's recommendations can even be put on the faculty senate agenda. So there's something seriously wrong with the premise that we let them do whatever they want, and then in retrospect, we kind of figure out if it was good or not. I, I think in general, most of the accountability systems in higher education would be the equivalent of you know, a J.D. Powers and Associates rating of automobiles by looking at how many tickets or, or, or accidents um, are accumulated by the people who purchase those cars and drive them. Or the equivalent of saying, we want to know how good this refrigerator is based on the body mass of the person who lives in the house that hosts the refrigerator. I mean, this is ridiculous. We don't hold Sears accountable if the power goes out and the meat rots in the refrigerator, but we're somehow holding faculty accountable if the student never opens the book and only shows up for class half the time. So many of the outcome measures that we do use are not based on what we hired a faculty member to do, and then at that, we're evaluating them on outcomes that they actually don't have a whole lot of influence over. You can lead the horse to water. You cannot make the horse drink. So I think we just have this crazy notion of how faculty are hired, and then an even crazier notion of how we evaluate um, what, how they've performed. And so, you know, I, I have some suggestions for how we could have a system of accountability um, that would, I think, in many ways yield the results that the Texas system was trying to yield, but in a way that I think gives all stakeholders an opportunity to participate in the voting. So I think the first thing we need to do is elimit, eliminate all direct public subsidies to colleges and universities. Now, I know that is a shocking idea, but what I would encourage, instead of giving subsidies to colleges and universities that the taxpayer doesn't know about, that the student doesn't know about, that the faculty might not even know about, why don't we take those funds and divide them up amongst students and let students vote with their feet? We allow wealthy students to vote with their feet. And unlike Dr. Trachtenberg's comments, comments about Columbia and Yale, I used to work at Princeton University where they care deeply about the amenities and about how nice the dorms are, and about the fact that the newest dorm that was funded by Meg Whitman had to have a five-star chef. And maybe Princeton used that to beat Harvard in the US news rankings for many, many years, although I think not last year. But um, so you know, wealthy students get to vote with their feet. Poor students, we send them either to community college or to the public institution that will accept them um, through open enrollment if they are students who can't um, uh, meet, you know, meet stringent admissions requirements, and we basically send them where it's the cheapest. Well, I would argue that if we give all of the students the amount of money that is spent on them, and we give them the opportunity to actually use that money to find the college or university that serves them, we get a pretty good idea of which institutions are serving the students and providing the support that the students need. I would say that the occupiers whose tent village I pass almost every day on my way to work were more than happy to take student loans to support their Starbucks coffee and their summer vacations and their really nice climbing walls and the fact that their dorm made that, meant that they didn't have to share a potty with anybody else. And now that they're all done with that, they don't want to repay it. Well, maybe they should have thought about that because the sad reality is that many students who borrow are not borrowing just for tuition. They're borrowing for a lifestyle and then they want somebody else to pay. I would argue that we need to eliminate sabbaticals. I spend a lot of my time working with adult learners, and I have to say that when adult learners decide to return to college, they don't exactly get a year off of work to get 
their, their skills enhanced. They don't get a year off of responsibility to go and retrain. No, instead, the rest of us, when we want to enhance our skills, we go to school at night and on the weekends in addition to our job and everything else we have to do. And perhaps faculty would be much better at dealing with adult students if they also had to manage their continuing education needs while working full time. I think that every institution should be required to publish the cost per student, not the student paid price, but the entire price of tuition, including all of the hidden subsidies, so that we can actually look at metrics relative to cost. None of us would expect a Pinto to drive like a Lexus, and yet when we look at metrics for higher education, we compare a $100,000 a year school with a $10,000 a year school, we compare those that have stringent admission requirements to those that are open enrollment, and somehow we magically think the outcomes should be the same. I would separate educational costs from all others so that students could pick the plan that works from them. The truth of the matter is, if the student wants tutoring, they should pay for it. If they want career placement services, they should pay for it. They already do, but because they're not making a direct payment, they don't realize it. And the truth of the matter is, we spend an awful lot of money trying to desperately get the bottom 20% through, because God help us if they don't graduate, and the top 50% who don't need and want those services are stuck paying for them. And so I would argue, charge people for education, charge them for career placement, charge them for tutoring as we already do, but charge it through a billable line so that they understand they're paying for it, and they may then actually be interested in evaluating the quality of it. I would say that it is important to require institutions to have consumer reports types of information, but it can't be graduation and retention rates because so much of that is determined by the input, what the student brings and what the admissions criteria is. But students do care about the mundane. If they're a commuting student, they want to know how many parking places do you have per student and how far am I going to have to walk at 530 at night to get to my class. They may be interested in knowing not how many books are in the library, but what the operating hours are and whether or not they can take coffee in. They might be very interested in understanding what IT resources are available and is the helpline 24 hours a day. And by the way, if I'm a low-income student, do I have access to a printer and to a computer on campus and how long do I have to wait for it? There are all kinds of tangible metrics. How many times does a student apply for a class and not get into it because the section is closed? How many classes are available in the summer? How frequently can a student actually take all of the courses that they need on the evenings or on the weekends? And so on and so forth. And yes, for the wealthy students who can afford it, we can evaluate the athletic facilities and the climbing walls and the really fancy dorms. And frankly, for the athletic program, if students want to participate, they ought to buy a ticket. I think that if we had students buying ticket for the campus football game, we would have institutions where students really want football and they'd pay for it, and we'd have other institutions where the students would say, you know what, not so into the football. And beyond that, maybe we wouldn't have to have certain teams that have no athletes on them just because we have to balance the numbers of teams that are available should somebody actually want to play that sport. I think in terms of student outcomes, we should randomly select cohorts of students and follow them for 10 years and post all of the things that they've done. Where have they been in their career? What jobs have they held? I actually think this would be quite educational. I do believe that people with degrees in the liberal, in the liberal arts end up having interesting jobs. I do believe that they have career success, but we oftentimes don't know how to track it, and students might actually find whole new career opportunities that they didn't even dream of if they actually watch students through the progression. So instead of featuring the superstar on the website, let's follow some cohorts of students and accurately track their progress. Again, a lot of progress is based on student personality, student interest, whether or not a student wants to work full-time or part-time, whether or not a student's willing to relocate. There are so many things involved in the, in the trajectory, but if we pick a random group of people and follow them, we're going to get a pretty good sense of where people end up in 10 years. I would extend the nonprofit tax exempt status only to direct educational activities, which means that if you have endowments above a certain level, you ought to pay taxes, you ought to pay taxes on the bookstore, you ought to pay taxes on your food services. Anything non-educational should not have the nonprofit status. And frankly, I think we should extend the nonprofit status only to those institutions that have an open enrollment policy. Why should a taxpayer support an institution to which they have no access? 
Now this is where lightning is going to strike me. I think that we should separate the research program from the teaching program. I think they should be separate entities funded through separate budgets and perhaps even in different real estate. We should pay teachers to teach. We should pay researchers to do research. And if somebody on the teaching side wants to do some research, then pay for their release time from teaching and vice versa. But we need to separate these as two distinct cost centers so that we can evaluate faculty based on what they're hired to do, teach, do research, and in some cases do both. I also think that we should require substantial cost sharing on research. Right now, the incentive is for a university to support any and all research because they want the indirect cost money, they want the reputational advantage, they have no vested interest in saying, you know what, this is quality, important research, not so much over here. But if we required more cost sharing, the institutions would have to think carefully about that. And frankly, not every institution should be a research university, and the states that want to build local economic development should contribute to research centers because that's part of the machine. I think we should evaluate faculty on their, ability, on their ability to teach by using third-party trained evaluators. I think faculty evaluations are a farce. I think they are reputation-based. I think they oftentimes reward faculty who are not teaching the best or teaching the hardest, but that are the most entertaining or perhaps the easiest. And I actually think we could have a group of people who are very well trained to go in and evaluate the quality of teaching. Faculty should have 360s, just like everybody in industry. And in fact, we might even want to talk to the faculty members who receive students in subsequent courses to find out if they were, in fact, prepared for those courses. And yes, while I agree that standardized assessments are not a perfect tool for assessing student outcomes and that you can't write a test that's as good for ballet dancers as it is for physicists, I do think we have some idea of what kinds of information, what kinds of abilities every college graduate should have. And by using the right kind of assessment, we can look to see that there has been growth by each individual. So this is not a flat out, you know, bright line standard, but we would hope that everybody experiences growth in the categories that we think are important to somebody who has a college education. The delta is far more important than the actual score. And Again, that doesn't mean everybody has to be a physicist or everybody has to be a ballet teacher, and I don't think we need to teach to the test, but frankly, if we have people graduating from college that can't solve for X, that can't capitalize, and that don't know how the history of the United States progressed, then in fact, we should reform the curriculum to teach to the test, because every college graduate should know these basic things. So, I think that I like the idea of the Texas A&M system, I like the idea of assessment, and I certainly like telling people the average cost per student when it, you know, it, when it gets above $90,000. Um, however, I think the Texas A&M system creates some perverse incentives on the side of faculty evaluations and on the side of, of, of um, maybe promoting research among people whose research is not of the quality that it should be um, um, advanced. So, I, you know, in, in summary, I, I do think we need to be accountable, and I do think students do need to get information about what's available to them, but I think graduation rates and I think those kinds of outcomes are largely dependent on admissions criteria, not quality of education. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, so, so I, I, I worry about systems that don't actually look at what the institution provides and the opportunities that are available as opposed to which students they're able to attract to their campus. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, I want to open it up to questions, but first I, I think I'd like to give any of our panelists an opportunity to respond to what the other panelists have said. Um, Jamie? Well, one well, two things. Yeah. First, a clarification. Texas A&M system, did you mean research universities or did you actually mean TPPF system? Because oh, I'm there sorry. Isn't, there I'm, isn't I'm a sorry. Texas A&M system. You're right. I mean, or, Texas A&M operates a certain way, but it's not unique to Texas A&M, so. Uh, I, I was talking about TPPF and the Texas A&M and the Texas A&M results. Uh, I guess I was talking about the, the spreadsheet that Texas A&M okay. produced. So I'm just letting A&M off the hook. Yes. I, partly, I guess, right? Uh, um, uh, just to be clear, that, that spreadsheet was done by A&M. It had nothing to do with TPPF. 
I mean, or me, or I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is interesting. Under duress, point. under duress. So. I guess what I'm talking about is the concept that we would actually start to evaluate faculty productivity, whether it was the Texas yeah. A&M spreadsheet, whether it was the the whole concept of actually looking at faculty value. Yeah. And Texas A&M was the spreadsheet. No, I just was, wanted to yeah. make sure that that credit was given, and also, and I, and just like uh, Jeff, can I call you Jeff? Uh, uh, you can call me I Jamie. I call worse. Yeah, um, I. Uh, well, okay, so the more than more than one of the seven solutions were implemented at Texas A&M, even as Texas A&M administration was telling us they weren't being implemented. We had a slate award program, which would yep. have been an, a, at least a second of these yep. that only had 3% participation because it was an offensive tool. And you, maybe you didn't mean it that way, but there already are, are tons of teaching awards. In fact, I say there's almost, I jokingly say there's almost no research awards, and then people say, oh, you hate teaching because you say you like research. Research is teaching too, and I love teaching as well. I like being around students, otherwise I could be doing a thousand other things as well. But the bottom line is, multiple things were implemented, and there were emails, I think between your father and a Board of Regents member, almost bullying emails saying you will do this, you will do this, and you will do this, or, we're, or basically we're gonna fire this person or that person, or, so there was no discussion, it was a flat out, and I'm not saying it's your fault, but these yeah, are facts, this is open, this was from an open records request too, so there's been a lot of dishonesty, no discussion, I like the fact that we're discussing things here. We can, I can see you're a human being, which a lot of faculty don't think you are. You, and a lot of people, and a lot of people, a lot of people don't think a lot of people think faculty are, are robots too. I love what I do, and if that's a crime, I, you know, I, I, I apologize for that. Uh, and I really care about the students succeeding too. My goal every day isn't to how can I suck things out of the taxpayer and the student every day. I pay the taxpayer back if for anything I do personally. So. I, that's okay. my stance. Okay. Any on other responses to what other people have said? Uh, this isn't a response at all, but it, but it is an observation. Um, and, and I don't think I understood this as well until this all started, uh, even though I've, I mean, I've been in the system and teaching for a long time and been on the boards and, and seen data. But I think there is a fundamental disconnect about the mission of the university between most tenured faculty and most taxpayers and students. And again, it's not to say it's good or bad. It's different. Um, I think that there is a prestige-based culture among the tenured faculty that feels like the mission of the university is to produce more PhDs. That's, that's, it exists to produce scholars. And if you understand that frame of mind, that frame of view, a lot of what goes on makes sense. If you ask Texas taxpayers, though, if you poll them, uh, as was done about a year ago, 80% think that the role of the university is to prepare students for meaningful and productive lives. And there is a massive cross-subsidy going on between taxpayers and students and the creation of PhDs that is not transparent. And so it doesn't matter which side, but when, when we argue past that problem, and in fact, I don't think the universities can stand up and say to the taxpaying public, our job's to produce PhDs. I don't think they would stand for that. But I think that is a fundamental disconnect that this whole fight has, has shown me as a real fundamental view between those of us paying for most of this and people producing it. So it's not it's not research versus teaching, it's research versus teaching undergraduates. I think it's the chase for prestige and creating scholars. Again, nothing wrong with that, but that's, but it, but except we're producing more scholars and we seem to need the feedback in the system. But it's producing scholars like Jamie, we need some. But it's that being the mission versus the primary mission being able to prepare students for meaningful and productive lives. That's a fundamental disconnect. And I would agree with that. So I, I think that's one of why, the reasons that I suggested that teaching and research should be in two different budget lines, two different institutions, because there is this hidden cross-subsidy where the undergraduates are essentially paying the tuition for the graduate students um, who, who get subsidized. Um, so there are some students who get stipends from the National Science Foundation, but when I worked at the National Science Foundation, one of the aha moments I had is that it's actually uh, very few graduate students who get the full stipend from the outside agencies. They tend to get a very small stipend from the agencies, and it's subsidized by departmental funds, which by and large come from the undergraduate tuition. So there, there is a great deal of cross-subsidization, um, except if somebody's bringing in, um, you know, the, the, the very prestigious NSF stipend or an NIH stipend. So there, there is a lot of cross-subsidization. Um, the, the other thing I want to address is, um, you know, I, I've heard this for 20 years, that, you know, doing research is teaching. 
or doing research helps the undergraduate experience. And, you know, the NSF spent a lot of money trying to show that that was the case, and they failed miserably, because what they found is that it's a very small percentage of undergraduates who get to participate in research. They tend to be the students who are at the top of the class anyway, and by and large, more students who do a research experience are actually encouraged to leave science than to stay. So what they found is that those who wanted to stay wanted to stay more as a result of the experience, and those who knew it was wrong knew more that it was wrong as a result of the experience. But it didn't have a large impact on the largest number of undergrads, and it really only impacted you know, the, the top 1 or 2 or 3% of students. So the, the idea that um, independent research supports the undergraduate program, I, I just don't believe. It does support the graduate program, but again, we have far more than pro, uh, re replacement level fertility in, in our PhD programs, right? For, for every one faculty member, they produce, you know, two, three, four PhDs every couple of years, and we just don't need that many. It, but it, the other thing is, I think a lot of the statements, you're accidentally talking about humanities without, even no, with, even, I'm not, I'm talking about, I'm a scientist, I'm talking about the sciences. Okay, so in engineering, you think the majority of undergrad tuition is paying for graduate student stipends in engineering for, for the majority? I'm or? saying across the sciences. If you look at the NSF indicators, okay. what it at shows At least is in engineering, I can just speak for engineering, I at least got to defend my little corner of the world. We... We pay for everything, meaning the professors themselves pay. There are a few TA positions, but not many. Uh, uh, the vast majority are direct external grants, pay for direct everything about the stipend, everything about the tuition. I, I pay everything in for my students my, myself. And I applaud you for as, doing as, that, but, but that's not, not that the special. typical. I'm not that special. That's, that's the other well, thing. Well, across the sciences, I would say you, you are. Okay. Okay. I bet you there's some questions out there um, right here. The woman, yeah. Hi, I'm Rachel Venezia. I'm with Cato. I, w I have some questions for uh, Mr. Grunlin. I was wondering if you could um, respond to Ms. Jones's um, suggestion that teaching and research be two different budget lines. What do you think about that? And also uh, Mr. Sandifer's idea that there are three different categories of professors and those that are making 155000 teaching only about 44 students a year, um, if something should be done about that category. So not your category, not the um, adjuncts, but those that third category. Well, the first thing, like anybody in life, I love being treated like an object uh, or an animal and, and uh, I'm in this cast or I have actually, uh, Mr. Sandifer gave a his friend O'Donnell had, and I think, is he here? Uh, had, had, actually had much cruder nicknames for the professors, and so he gave a very nice version of a very academic report that this schmuck is in this category, that guy is in that category, and just, and so yeah, the, uh, yeah, you know, and anybody in any profession would be bothered. If you did that to police officers, I'd love to see the outcry that there would be, or if you did it to any other, pro professors are an easy target. I, I, I totally admit it, you know, and we apparently have no emotion, and we apparently are relatively worthless human beings based on what I heard today. But what I, what I, what I yeah, so should teaching and research be separated? No, I don't think so. I, I've, I've always had as many undergrads in my lab as graduate students. They get paid almost like it's work-study, except I'm the one paying it. They're using what they've learned in the classroom. Uh, if that's not education, I don't, I don't know what is. Yeah. Well, once again, all of these things sound very, if, you, if I say something as one sentence and it's not implemented yet, it sounds very easy. I could say all kinds of things that sound very pithy and they sound, wow, that'd be, why, why aren't we doing that? That makes perfect sense. It, it, this is not a trivial thing. It wouldn't work that way. It, it just wouldn't, it sounds, actually all the seven solutions actually sound good because how could I say, you don't want better teaching? Yes, I do. I don't like the way the methodology. No one's against improving anything we can. In fact, if we can cut tuition in half without killing the mission of the university, I'm absolutely, you heard me on the record, I'm 100% for it. And, and, and I'd love to participate. So far, I haven't, I haven't been engaged in the process. Things have been done to me. I haven't had a chance to participate. So that's, that's the situation. Other questions? Way back in the back. 
Um, Steve Luckett, I'm a producer and writer in television news here in the city and uh, soon to be a grad student uh, here in D.C. also. Um, to Ms. Jones, this likely will uh, crease a smile across your face. Uh, your most recent alma mater uh, was profiled last weekend uh, in a news magazine and the focus essentially was STEM programs and students who, for the most part, born, grew up here in the United States, taking advantage of that and thriving wonderfully. Could you comment on the the, the belief and the, the, the popular discussion topic of visas or green cards essentially being stapled to degrees of those who study in the STEM programs here in the States as a hedge against them going back home and to the uh, two gentlemen and even hopefully if uh, Professor Trachtenberg wants to get in on this, my newsman's instincts uh, would, would sleep not a bit if I uh, overlooked the topic of the NCAA and its influence on university campuses. Um, so could you guys comment on that, Ms. Jones, if you would, please? So are you, uh, you're asking me to, com to comment on brain drain, right? Okay, so, because um, I don't know anything about NCAA, um, trust me. Um, uh, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about the visa issue, because I worked on Capitol Hill and in the White House um, on science policy issues, so I've spent a great deal of time thinking about it. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense for people who come to the United States to, to, to get an education, um, to have an opportunity to stay here. I think that it's actually pretty crazy that we allow people to come here to be educated and then we ship them back home when, when the taxpayer has subsidized um, even if they pay full tuition, if they're at a public institution or a nonprofit private, the taxpayer has partially subsidized their education. So why would we not want to keep them here if they want to be here to contribute to our knowledge base and our economy? Um, so, uh, you know, I, but, but I also understand from a policy perspective, any time you try to open H-1B visa legislation or any kind of immigration legislation, you can't open the door this wide. The whole thing is opened up and then you have to answer every question about immigration. And so I think, frankly, there has been an interest um, through both of the last two administrations to try to find a way to give people who are educated here an opportunity to stay here. Um, and, and it's been very difficult because once you open that door, um, everything is open. Now, that's not the same as the DREAM Act. So I think, you know, we have the DREAM Act, and then we also have graduate students who come here on a student visa, and then those are two separate issues. Uh, again, if you open one of them, the other one gets opened as well. And the DREAM Act is a tough one. That's just going to be a very tough piece of legislation, not based on partisan lines, but based on geography. Did you want to yeah, yeah, NCAA is not my area of expertise, so I'll, I'll pass on that one. I had a full scholarship to football, for, for football to undergrad, and so I, li I like sports and they're not harmful, I don't think, but that's just my opinion. You had a question? Uh, it's an observation, but I'll turn it into a question. Uh, almost everything we've heard from this panel and others, except maybe the one I was on, uh, was we just need to run universities more like a business. That's the bottom line, that's the top line. And what seems to be missing from this is any vision, uh, any progressive sort of future, any civic life or civic association. Now, this thing you just mentioned about uh, uh, brain drain, uh, for years I've been teaching and I've always thought we're building an international network. Uh, we're educating people from abroad, we send them back uh, they build their universities like ours. We have better communications. It helps world trade. Uh, people who oppose this strike me as the same folks who are against the Marshall Plan after World War II. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, why don't we uh, open our minds to the rest of the world? I think one of the reasons we've been so successful financially is because we have allies who've been educated in the United States located all around the world. I do a lot of work in Ireland. Uh, one half of the Irish seven national universities faculties are PhDs from U.S. universities. I mean, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Why is it not? That's my question. And one closely related to it, uh, I think you move much too quickly and much too uh, 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 without serious thought uh, on this uh, business of separating research and teaching. Uh, teaching is enhanced by good research even if it's not publish, publishable research. I remember when I went, uh, did my undergraduate stuff at Union College several years ago, there was a professor of history, Joe Finkelstein, nobody ever heard of him. Joe told me once that he writes uh, an academic paper every year 
and puts it in the file. He doesn't even try to get it published, but it helps his teaching. Uh, I, I think the relationship between teaching and research is important. I think it's different uh, from teaching research and then publications. We maybe should de-emphasize the publication part, uh, but I think you're, you're tearing university uh, life apart into small uh, sort of commercial uh, models, and it doesn't work. I, I think this running universities as a business is a cheap shot. And no, no I think, it, and here's why, because you're not talking about that. I mean, that makes universities sound like Walmart or you're going to run a factory and it's a nice, you know, it's a nice way to, to transition to that argument. In fact, you know, the Marine Corps have a very clear set of measurements and values in a culture and a mission. Habitat for Humanity, very clear measurements, very clear culture. So this isn't about running something like a business. It's about delivering on the results you promised at a cost to who pays. And to your second point and the first one, the question of who pays is important. If you're running something and you're paying for it, you can run it however the heck you want. If you're running it with taxpayer subsidies or, parent, or parents are paying for it, then I think we should have a say-so in what we're choosing and the promises should be delivered on. And I can choose a different university. Well, it, it's, it's a model of how I would choose to go to Habitat and volunteer my services to build a house for them. It's a model for how I would choose to serve my country in the Marine Corps. It's a model for any healthy organization. So to use the business argument to run an organization poorly, like a bureaucracy, strikes me is, is not making much sense. And this idea of, well, gee, we ought to do it for just the common good to send PhDs abroad. If that's worth it, and I, we could have that argument separately, it should be costed separately, and we should decide who's going to pay for it. So for you to put that cost on all of us as taxpayers without us having visibility into it in a say-so, I don't think is correct. Because I think maybe one of the things I said was distorted. Um, I don't, I'm not saying we don't let them go home. I'm saying that if people come here and choose to go back home, that's great. That's soft diplomacy. If they choose to stay here, we should have mechanisms that allow them to do so. What, what's been really interesting to me is, we, you know, U.S. policy for years was to try to build up a research infrastructure in China because we thought that soft diplomacy would be our best bet against communism. And now what I hear from faculty all the time is, oh, my God, China's going to clean our clock. we got to beat China. Well, China is a rising tide because diplomacy and, and, and our contributions over a long number of years have had at least part of an impact there. So I, so I guess I'm not saying that we shouldn't not let them go back. I'm just saying that for people who want to stay, there's real value in keeping them here. And on the issue of separating research, you know, I do believe that there are a small number of universities that should be research universities where, in fact, maybe you would have teaching and research combined. But the vast majority of institutions should not have research and teaching combined and, frankly, shouldn't have research. And I agree with you that if, as a faculty member who's doing some independent research on the side, that's great. But the cost of doing research in my field, in the sciences, is extraordinarily high. And what we have is not enough money to go around, and every university wants science funding, and there's not enough indirect cost money at any institution to actually support the infrastructure. And so there is a high cost in having a distributed research model in the sciences. And so I think if you separate the two, you'll have really great research universities with really productive research facilities. But we got to get out of the wannabe, and everybody wants to be a research university. So. And I want to once again make clear, I, I've never said separate research and teaching. I've said let's measure them separately, and you can do both if you do both well. Uh, that's terrific. It is true. Most of the data shows that very few people do both well. But I'd also say the idea that continuing education uh, is research. I mean, all of us need to keep our professional skills proficient. I'm a pilot. I should go get pilot training. Uh, I'm a teacher. I should improve my teaching. I should study in my area. Whether I should get half my time off to do that and get paid for that professional uh, research or professional education is a whole different matter. So, of course, somebody who's going to teach has to stay up in their field. That's what I do as a teacher. Should I get paid extra to do that? and not have to teach much using that as an excuse. I, I think that's a whole different argument. More questions? Going on? Got a question? Great. Before having to go, go teach. Um, I think the NCA thing is a real is a, is a real problem. There are splendid undergraduate institutions that aren't uh, Division One. 
uh, and uh, and uh, youngsters can uh, participate in intercollegiate sports and and extramural sports, and it ought to be part of their lives, and they ought to have sound minds and sound bodies, and blah blah blah. Uh, I don't think that universities uh, need to be the uh, training fields for professional football and uh, and uh, and basketball, or at least if they're going to be, I'd like to see more. Uh, of the expense of that enterprise shared by the professional sports franchises with those universities. And perhaps when they recruit a, a player, uh, they ought to pay some bonus back to the university where the, uh, where the player uh, came from. Uh, in any case, uh, um, again, this is all so, so, so complicated. So you can imagine a state like Nebraska where the, 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 the state university sport is actually consequential and uh, and uh, and part of the pride of the entire the entire Commonwealth and uh, and distinguishable from uh, uh, states where there are a dozen uh, uh, university teams and professional uh, professional sports and while I you know I went to Columbia as an undergraduate and so I've had 50 years of bemoaning its losses um, I maybe have the wrong background for this particular question but anyway that's that's my view uh, I also think it'd be very useful if there were. Uh, federal research laboratories that faculty from regional uh, universities could participate in, in terms of the research. GW, we had to have happened to have a rich uh, number of physicists who were interested in atomic research, and we used to dispatch them to Los Alamos in the summers and uh, and uh, um, uh, on their sabbaticals, and uh, because it was impossible for us to maintain uh, the facility to keep them current. So that we need to think these things through. Uh, not by making false choices, but by finding alternative models uh, of, uh, of answering the questions. Of course, research informs teaching, and teaching informs research, and ha hanging around with young people is good for people, and, uh, and so on. Uh, we ought not force ourselves uh, to, to create artificial parodies and then have to take sides. It's not, it's not that kind of enterprise. Anyhow, thank you very much. I feel very privileged to have been here today, and I, I, wa I want to thank Professor Vetter for inviting me. Thank you. <coughs> All right. No more questions? Right here. Um, in all fairness to Jeff, who he and Rick Donald were hung in effigy, I think. If not, they probably will be. But it's not fair. It's just not fair what he said. And there was so much mischaracterization of that stuff. Now, the thing that you just read about Rich, what he said here today, he didn't say it. But it's been written up back home by a coalition that he badmouthed the uh, University of Texas. He said almost nothing about University of Texas. I badmouthed it. But, Jim, uh, but, but he did not do it. And in that article, you see the strategy. It is Rich Vetter's the bad guy working in cahoots with Sandifer, bad-mouthing at a conference here. And if you were here, he was perfectly reasonable in his comments, and he made no bad-mouthing comments about the University of Texas. The other thing I want to say about Sandifer's seven solutions, you mentioned those now, and it's a suggestion that you're inviting people to have the plague. But what you need to know is that almost all of his solutions have been incorporated in the plan that the chancellor came forward with. I have read that plan very carefully. Of the seven solutions, two are external. One is giving money directly to students. The other is accreditation. That has to be done by the legislature. So five of his comments, five of his solutions deal with what the university can do. If you will look carefully at the framework, you will see that all five of the solutions are in there. All they've done is to change the wording. But as Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So he has triumphed even though they badmouth him. Now, I want to make just the recommendation in your own speech. Yes, yes. So th and I'm confused. Well, because it's a, it's a stall. It's these solutions, but you didn't think they were good. It's a stall. What I'm trashing him for is So I feel don't... like you just want to win 
But you're not trying to improve anything. I'm talking about you no, specifically, no, no, not Mr. Sanford. No. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is to say it in what he's trying Dr. to do. Dr. Trowbridge. Is reasonable. What, what Cigaroa is trying to do is to stall any kind of improvement based on even, the, even, uh, even adopting his five solutions. Now, let me make a comment about you. All right, fair game. What you represented here today, in large measure, was a continuation of the mischaracterizations. Let me tell you why. In, in 30 seconds. In 30 seconds. After this thing was done in, uh, in, in the, when it was first started in 2008, after that, Texas Public Policy Foundation said nothing about it. Nothing. The only guy who wrote about it subsequently was me. Only you? you yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll, yes. we'll do a... We'll, we'll I was only, now, if you want to come after me, go ahead. But you better do your homework. Uh, people are coming after me. Nobody's coming after you. To after our panel. So thank you, everybody. Neil, did you have a couple of final words? Well, uh, this last panel, I think, uh, offered a lot of the excitement that we had all been hoping for, that we built up toward. Um, I think, I hope, people, you can uh, stay around a little while afterward. I think we probably have to be out of this building pretty soon, but I'm sure you'll want to chat about this uh, some more. Uh, I think, ultimately, this has been a pretty insightful uh, and interesting event, at least it has been for me. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, all the speakers uh, who are here today um, for taking the time to make it, I think, a, a very good conference. Uh, there are some people, though, you know, who don't make it up on the stage who certainly deserve a lot of thanks uh, for what we did, uh, were able to do today. Rich and the CCAP gang. Uh, we're instrumental in bringing this all together, especially Jonathan Robe, who is somewhere here. I can't, there he is. He did a whole lot. The Cato Conferences Department, uh, especially uh, Ronalyn Teodoro and Becky Shaw, who are also here somewhere. I can't see anything. But they did excellent uh, work putting this all together. And I should also, I don't know whether this is a secret or not, but it isn't anymore. Uh, I want to thank Jeff Sandifer, who, uh, it, depending where you are on this uh, debate, you think one thing or another, but he funded this and had no problem with bringing all sorts of voices together. And I think that this really speaks to the, the transparency, at least that he's trying to bring to this. And in fact, if you remember my comments, I'm not necessarily a big fan of what's been tried in Texas. But here we are hosting this. And I think we've really had a lot of good discussion. I hope that there's a lot more. So great thanks to him for putting this together and certainly doing nothing to try and do in any way quash debate. Uh, I want to invite everybody, as you can tell, we're not actually in the Cato Institute right now. Probably the stained glass was something of a giveaway. Um, so we're not in Cato because Cato, if you just go down a block, you'll see is being expanded and renovated. I want to invite you all to come back uh, to whatever events we have in May, wherein I understand the main building will be open. Um, and uh, I, use, I tried a Star Trek reference earlier that went over like a lead balloon. Now I'm going to try Star Wars. Maybe this will work a little better. So in May, for, for um, anybody who, as I would say, hates freedom, but it doesn't really like Cato, in May, the, the new building will become fully operational. Oh, somebody got that. So a reference to the Death Star would become fully operational. Anyway, so thanks again, everyone, for coming. This whole event will be online, so please tell people who couldn't get here to view. It will be online probably on Monday. Thank you all again, and please return home safely.